Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode of For Pete's Sake, and I am your host, Becca Free. So I live in the state of Utah, which is in the western United States, and this time of year is always exciting as we go from spring slowly easing into summer. The days are longer and warmer. We've had to install our air conditioning system in our little apartment. It's been nice. And I am a trail runner and mountain runner, and I've been eagerly awaiting the snow melting from the foothills and the wildflowers blooming, and winter has begun to feel almost like a memory. And though I'm stoked for summer, over the past few years, summer has become synonymous with wildfire season. It's not if something's going to burn, but when. And I guess I'm trying to savor these early days of clean summer air and beautiful mountain views before it all becomes choked with smoke. And that has become our reality now here, especially in the Western United States and Canada. And in Utah, there aren't very many peatlands, but wildfires also happen in peaty areas. And it seems like peatlands are burning more and more these days as well. So to talk about this phenomena, I brought peatland wildfire expert Dr. Sophie Wilkinson on the pod, and we talk about all things peat fire, and I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I know that I learned a lot, and I hope you find it interesting as well. I think I was a little bit uh, disjointed mentally as we were going through this interview, but Sophie took it all in stride. She answered all my questions and gave even more information beyond the questions that I asked, which I appreciate because I, yeah, (laughs) I felt a little bit off of things, but yeah, I learned a lot. And so with that, let's get into the conversation. All right. How was your trip to the UK? Good. Yeah, it's going, well, I'm still here. It's going very well so far. We're doing some late night podcast recording. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah otherwise you'd have to get up very early indeed yeah are you from the uk i am yeah okay whereabouts um i'm from nottinghamshire um sort of smack bang in the middle of the country not too close to anything um yeah and then i did my undergrad at leeds so okay cool I did not know that about you, but I've never met you before, so I don't know. I guess I just assume people in Canada are generally from Canada, but I'm not from Canada, and I'm also at a Canadian university, so. Where are you from? I'm from the United States. Yeah, I figured, but, you know, I'm still getting to grips with my Canada-American accent, so (laughs) I don't like to to presume that I have got it right. Yeah, and I grew up in Seattle, so pretty close to BC. And I think that, like, the Vancouver, Seattle, I don't think there's really that much of a difference in accents. No, I don't think so. So, yeah, that would be very hard to tell. It's only in places, I I guess, like, Manitoba or farther east where there's, like, a very strong Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's funny. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I um, have a bunch of questions for you but usually how I start this off is to get a an idea of folks background um before we dive into the peatland stuff 
people want to know who you are as a human. So could you tell me a little bit about your background, I guess, with your education um, and also your first peatland experiences that led you to go into this track? Yeah, definitely. So um, I grew up in the UK and, you know, was just one of those kids that was always outside, lots of energy. Um, So I ended up stumbling across some peatlands definitely way before I knew um, what they were. But then I'd say, you know, I was always very interested in the outdoors, but my love of peatlands really started forming at um, the University of Leeds in my undergrad. And Leeds is situated right next door to the North York Moors. Um, so there are these like beautiful rolling moorlands, um, which are actually more upland peatlands. And so we started, started learning about those and, you know, seeing all the heather on those and stuff. So that was super interesting to me. So I sort of appreciated them as a landscape well before I got into the, into the science of them. And then I did environmental science at Leeds for my undergrad and learned a lot from some super talented lecturers that they have there um, about climate and sort of climate change policy um, and all sorts of stuff like that. And I was like, oh, well, from the very little amount that I know about peatlands, um, they really seem like, you know, the best bang for your book in terms of carbon. And so they must be really important. But I still didn't know too much about them. And then I um, went on exchange to McMaster University in Canada. And I took a class uh, with Dr. Mike Waddington. And he started teaching us about these peatlands that he'd been working in. And I learned sort of more of the the science, the sort of hydrology, eco-hydrology of them, you know, just in this undergrad class. And then he suddenly says, oh, yeah, and now we're studying these uh, these particular peatlands out west in, in Alberta because they just burned in this big wildfire. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is crazy um so then I actually went up to him at the end of class and was like this sounds really cool I know we only talked about it for sort of 20 minutes today but I have to do a thesis as part of my um sort of exchange courses so can I can I do it on these peatlands that are on fire and he said yes and so that's really where it all kicked off and then I ended up coming back to Leeds for a bit and then I went back to McMaster um, and did my PhD on peatland wildfire because yeah I was still I was still super interested in it hadn't figured it out from the first thesis so did some more. So you figured it out now and case closed? Oh no I don't think so I think it just that's the thing with PhDs isn't it the more you know the more you don't know Yes. Yes, indeed. That's really, that's pretty intriguing that you got into peat fire like right away. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I just thought it was so 
just so interesting, mainly because it's so counterintuitive. And I just love things that are, you know, not as they seem on the surface, which I think is, you know, a peatland is the epitome of that, isn't it? Um, because when you can't see it all, and not many people expect wetlands to burn. So, yeah, I loved that about this this problem, right? Because there's there's such such a separation between people's ideas of peatlands, if they do have an idea of what a peatland is, and the fact that, you know, a peatland is a type of wetland, and yet here we are talking about how peatlands burn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that is the, oh, the words are failing me, but I guess it is just counterintuitive. But yeah, this is a wetland, Mm-hmm. water usually we use to put out fire um so that's kind of where i would like to start is talking a little bit about um i guess the fire regime of peatlands naturally and we can focus in on western canada or if you want to talk about things generally um that's you can choose i yeah. don't have as good enough of <laughs> uh, i guess a focus in that research area so i'm interested yeah, well, um, it's it's very diverse. So I guess that's the first thing to start off with. Um, a key point being that peatlands do burn naturally. Wildfire is part of their natural sort of developmental cycles. And the peatlands in Canada, we'll start with, um, you know, that have the northern peatlands that have developed over the last you know, 7,000 years, they have developed and grown and accumulated all this carbon whilst also experiencing wildfire on a cyclical basis. And they have a ton of fire adapted plants, actually, you know, through these different um, fires that they have experienced repeatedly. And I think it's easy for people to think, oh, wildfire in peatlands is, you know, terrible and very unnatural because it's a wetland that's that's on fire but actually you know looking back in the in the paleo records and stuff there's bits of charcoal there's fire adapted species and yeah so i think that's that's really important to remember just to sort of set the tone and then you can start thinking about how fire is experienced differently by in different peatland types, be it fens and bogs. I know you and Kristen talked a lot about this. So there's fens and bogs and they differ in their hydrological regime and their um, vegetation. And then of course you have open peatlands or shrubby peatlands or treed peatlands. And so each of those sort of makes, sets the system up to experience fire differently. And that's just the, they're the sort of bottom up controls on how peatland experiences fire. Um, But of course, maybe not that, maybe not the biggest, but the overarching top down controls are, are climate and weather. So basically a peatland has all this fuel. It has these above ground fuels, be it shrub, well, even sedges and grasses or shrubs and trees. So it has these above ground fuels, just like any other ecosystem. 
but they're only sort of ready to burn if the climate sort of dries them out enough. And so that's why you don't typically get peatlands igniting all year round. They follow the regular fire season of the spring, summer, um, wherever they are, if it's a natural uh, fire ignition anyway. Um, and that's why they, they can burn because all you have to do is dry them out enough. And there's actually a ton of fuel in peatlands. So that's why they actually typically follow um, wildfire regimes of, of the other forests in that region. So in Canada, peatlands burn typically more regularly in Western Canada than they do in Eastern Canada, just because the West is drier. That makes sense. When I, or in my experience with peatlands, I've worked on tree bogs in Alberta and then harvested peatlands. And so for me, it's very easy for me to see how a tree bog, for example, could catch on fire. Because when I think of wildfires, I think of trees <laughs> and there are trees on those. And then in a harvested peatland, that also makes sense to me because you have bare peat that has been artificially drained. So that's also some dry material there. But the fact that like sedge fens yeah. and shrub peatlands also burn that is very interesting yeah well actually all you need for a fire is organic matter you just need that organic matter to combust and lots of ecosystems are actually what we call fuel limited so that means the fire can only sort of put out as much energy as the fuel that it has so the fire energy, um, the intensity of the fire is limited by the amount of fuel. But in peatlands, I mean, you have meters and meters and meters of peat. So it's typically not fuel limited, which is actually why peatland wildfires are such a challenge. Because it's like, oh, well, you know, the fire will put itself out when it's run out of trees. But when you're in a peatland, you just have tons and tons of this organic matter which is typically protected by a water table you know a nice high water table but sometimes it's not and like you say whether that's through artificial drainage or whether that's severe drought or even just seasonal drought like there are times that peatlands are the peatland fuels are available to burn what's the deepest you've seen a peatland burn oh great question I sound very excited about this, um, but it's actually a really terrible situation. Um, but it's it's just quite in, incredible to see it, actually. Um, and we're working on a, a harvested peatland, like you've talked about, and I think you might have worked on um, peatlands in this region, actually, as well, which I was like, oh, we're actually coming, coming full circle in the peatland uh, community we're getting a connection so um in these peatlands we're actually i've been talking to wildfire managers in this region a lot they reached out to me to say hey we've got uh drained peatlands in our region and now they're on fire and we don't know what to do and so it's been a really great experience so far of teaching them about peatland wildfire and how they might go about managing it and trying to suppress it 
and them teaching us about what they're seeing on the ground. Um, and they're actually reporting burning peat at over 10 feet deep. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, far end of the spectrum. This is a heavily drained system and it's a harvesting area. So obviously the peat is deep there, otherwise they wouldn't be harvesting there. But um, yeah, especially where there's drainage ditches and sort of cuts down into the peat to allow the fire to get to get deep at the beginning. And then it's just been working its way and they keep trying to dig it up and it's just still burning. That is wild. What is the average you would say that you see? Hmm. Go out and look at a burned peatland. Because, okay, 10 feet is extreme. Yes. So 10 feet is way on the, yeah, the high end of the spectrum. So it, it depends where it ignites. And like you say, it very much depends on whether it's degraded or not. Because natural peatlands, like I say, they, well, pristine peatlands, they naturally experience wildfire. So if they naturally experience a wildfire, typically it's low severity. They have a nice high water table. They have their wet spongy mosses. They have sphagnum mosses, which are super fire resistant just because they hold on to water so well because they have such a high gravimetric water content. So more water than they do have mass. It means that they actually sort of sap energy from the fire because there's so much of the energy that goes into sort of trying to drive off that water that they, they end up sort of slowing the, the spread and the severity of the fire. So in natural peatlands, you're probably going to get a nice varied depth of burn between one and five to seven centimetres. Okay. You're talking so like completely different. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And of course you can, you get pockets, you get pockets of denser peat, you get pockets of drier peat. Um, a fair bit, or some of my um, PhD work was sort of trying to highlight these areas where you would get a deep smoldering. Um, and so we'll probably touch on that one later. Um, but this is where you get this sort of propagation of burning and sort of self-sustained burning of the peat. And we found that some areas that are very prone to that are the margins of the peatland. So the transition between the peatland proper and the surrounding upland, where your peat thins out um, a little bit, or it has a more varied water table because it's, um, sort of on that transition zone and it's not moderated in the middle of your nice groundwater mound. And so that actually makes the peat denser, which it then creates this feedback, which is so interesting um, to look at all of these peatland feedbacks from the perspective of how they impact wildfire um, and sort of wildfire severity. So if you have a fluctuating water table, so you have a water table that goes up and down quite quickly depending on the rain filling it up or um, the lack of rain drawing the water table down that actually makes the peat decompose faster and then it gets denser which then propagates that change in water table and then when you get a drought 
before a fire would come along, you've really dried out that peat, you know, almost like the artificial drainage. And now you've got this dry, dense peat in the margins of the peatland. And then they burn out one, two, even three meters, however sort of deep they are until you get to mineral soil or or bedrock. And we've actually seen that across Canada, at least. So in the Boreal Shield in Ontario um, and also in the Boreal Plains out in Alberta. That's pretty interesting that, and very cool. That's very cool research that you were able to see that difference between the middle of the peatland and in the margins. Mm-hmm. And when you multiply that up by how much carbon that is, you really start to see, oh, wow, we really should be thinking about these margins um, in terms of the, you know, the climate impact of the amount of carbon that is produced is a lot different to saying, oh, they probably all burn, you know, in and around three to five centimeters. But then if you start counting for these hot spots and these pockets um, of really high peat burn severity, then, you know, your your numbers really start, start climbing. Um, and then, like you say, when you get into the degraded peatlands or the artificially drained peatlands, it is just a whole different ball game. Yeah, because that's kind of my next question. So we go from a pristine or at least an intact peatland system that burns. And for the most part, those are pretty fire resistant as long as that water table is still high. And you can have seasonal variation and year-to-year variation, just depending on how wet it is. But then I had skipped ahead a little bit, mentioning um, harvested or drained peatlands. Um, But yeah, let's talk a little bit about that a little bit more pointedly, I guess, when you have different, whether it's direct disturbances like a harvesting situation um, or areas where it is just getting systematically drier because of climate change. Um, yeah, what are we what are we saying? Is it is that a redundant question since we already answered it, or is there more that you want to say with that? Well, like I said earlier, there is such so much still to to learn and, and to talk about with these with these peatland fires. And I think there's still lots of things to talk about. I mean one in the harvested um peatlands being you've you've removed their their natural fire resistance um because you've removed that water table hi just to clarify um the water table is not removed but is significantly lowered and that's what sophie means there so that's super important because what protects the pristine peatlands is that nice um sort of plush layer of uh, sphagnum mosses typically on the surface. Um, But if you remove that, then it's just sort of straight, dry, organic matter. And and there's a reason that people used to burn coal for fuel because it's a wonderful fuel. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's really something to think about. And it's easier, I think it's easier in a drained peatland for some reason to think about the propagation of peatland fire down into the peat profile as a sort of energy balance. And and that's really, that's what determines whether the combustion reaction continues or not. It's, does the energy 
um, from this burning of this fuel um, outweigh the energy required to drive off the moisture in the next door fuel um, and heat it up to a combustion temperature. And if that's the case, then that reaction is self-sustaining. And that's how you get these really deep um, burns. And it's also how you get what they call zombie fires, if you've potentially heard that term sort of thrown around in the media. Um, these are fires that, this is not, a, that's not a drained peatland phenomenon. This is um, typically, Merritt might have talked about it um, in the in the permafrost um, peatland chat, which is where these peatland fires sort of bury themselves underground. And it's it's important to remember that they only travel they're only sort of um, consuming peat at millimeters per hour, um, up to centimeters, yeah, centimeters per day sort of scales. So this is so slow compared to your raging above ground flaming wildfires. Um, so you just have this uh, combustion which sort of crawls along underground and maybe it, maybe it does snow on the surface but this fire is just feeding itself and it needs very little oxygen um it's actually a completely not completely but it's a different process to flaming combustion um where it's called smoldering and this combustion is actually the combustion of the solid phase of the fuel and so it doesn't need a lot of oxygen it self-sustains if you want to picture smoldering, picture the coals that you have uh, left over after uh, a campfire or something. And just think about how long they can glow for. Um, though, you know, when you have those leftover chunks of wood and there's there's no there's no flames. But if you fan them hard enough, then you can potentially, you know, create flame again but they're, they're still burning and it's still consuming fuel. It's just at a much slower rate. But there's so much heat. They hold so much heat for such a long time. And that's what those dense peat fuels uh, really do. So getting back to the zombie fires, um, that is where the peat fire moves down into the peat profile and then it snows and it covers the surface. But the peat fire is still still doing its thing still consuming peat and then at some point it'll move back up to the surface or there'll be sort of a macro pore or a crack which allows smoke up through the surface um, and that's the only way you can spot them and then in the springtime when the snow melts and maybe you get like a um a dry period these fires will actually re-emerge and they can re-emerge and if it's windy they can turn back into flaming wildfires or they can just sort of continue to consume peat and that's why they're called zombie fires because they sort of re-emerge after spring um they come back from the dead but of course now we know that they've just been burrowing their way underground for the whole winter i like the term zombie fire personally it's kind of fun <laughs> it's a it's a fun image and yeah i guess i've Oh, always kind of wondered that was a great explanation because I have wondered like there's not that much oxygen mm -hmm. in peatlands that deep and is there a fair amount of like 
land subsidence when that happens, when you have peatland smoldering at depth as it's consuming that peat material? That's a great question. I don't know if anyone has actually studied the subsidence yet. Um, and you would presume so, um, but I don't, I don't know if there's, if there's any measurements of it. I mean, I've measured a lot of top down, where was the surface and where is the surface now? But I don't know if anyone's sort of seen any collapses or anything from peat fires. And I guess there's already the <laughs> peatlands generally go up and down depending on the water table. So maybe that would be hard to measure. Yeah, it would be, but. I think, especially in some of the the really big Siberian um, peat fires, you could potentially see it there, given that it's such a such a big area, and maybe you can correct for water table in surrounding areas. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> that brings up another point. So we have peat fires, obviously, in Canada, um, and then you said in Siberia, I. I am familiar with tropical peat fires in like Indonesia that have Mm -hmm. caused a lot of global greenhouse gas emissions and also air quality (laughs) issues. Where do do peat fires happen wherever there's peat or are some places uh, larger hotspots? Yeah, great question. Um, Peat fires can happen wherever there's peat, um, I would say. Because yeah, if you if you drain them enough, they'll they'll burn. So, a lot of my research has focused on Canadian peatlands, and like I say, I've looked at sort of tiny peatlands, like a few meters to a few tens of meters across in the boreal shield. Um, turns out they can burn in a in a strong seasonal drought, and then in the boreal plains, uh, it's a subhumid region, so you get multi-year droughts, multi-year water table drawdown, um, and they burn. And then I've actually started working with Roxanne Anderson and Scott Davidson and some researchers in the UK, and they're finding increasing occurrences of fire in UK peatlands and moorlands. Um, And even though the UK climate is not very conducive to fire, of course, climate change is uh, really exaggerating the extremes on every scale. So they're getting more dry and hot periods. And actually, this is in conjunction with human ignitions. That the climate is sort of the weather is conducive to fire, but they wouldn't typically get lightning ignitions like you do in Canada. But people are going out having barbecues or candles or cigarettes or whatever it is and causing ignitions on peatlands which then take hold because the peat is so dry and so I've been learning a lot about sort of blanket bogs and how they're slightly different and um, the wildfire that you can get on them and then like yes like we say in Siberia there's a lot of peat and a lot of fires and it's very remote there so actually that's we hear about that and we learn about that a lot through remote sensing. And then in the tropical peatlands, the fire regime and the sort of causes are, are different again, because a lot of peatlands are drained and planted. Um, so they're degraded through the drainage, but then there's also slash and burn agriculture, which is typically 
the ignition source for tropical peatlands and that's a practice of agriculture that's been done but now the climate's uh, the weather's drier and um, these peatland fires can can really take hold and there's they're very very challenging to put out and tropical peatlands tend to be very very deep as well so like I said there's just so much fuel to burn and that's how you you get these really bad haze events and and air quality um, periods from the peat fires thanks for that overview i guess talking at the global scale a little bit more or we can go back to canada whichever one <laughs> have we've been talking about climate change and i've seen these papers come out about like the western united states how we know that california is especially burning mm -hmm. more often and more like larger areas i would assume more severely as well is that the same is that the case for peatlands are we seeing more of these fires and are they getting larger and more intense great question there's lots of different, there's lots of different aspects to this because I think one thing that sort of we're very aware of, you know, being in the peatland uh, science community is that there's actually, the peatlands aren't that well mapped. So it's very tricky to say, oh, you know, is peatland area burned increasing or um, are they burning more frequently? I would say that they likely are, but it's very tricky to get the data for that because there's very few regions that have good peatland maps. And then you have to layer on sort of the uncertainty or um, the accessibility of data on um, fire perimeters as well. So that does make that that question very, very challenging to answer. And I think we have a lot of work to do in, in Canada and globally to better map and sort of better quantify the area of peatland that are burning and of course bring that depth aspect into it as well right because you have to think about the volumes of peat that are burning not just the area so we don't know for sure then that they are burning more just because we we don't have the data that we need yeah i would say so um there's definitely been modeling and predictions um, which suggests they are burning more. And like you say about California, also suggests that they are burning or will burn more severely. So quite a lot of um, the research that I've been doing has been looking at what are the controls on the severity of burn in peatlands? Because, I mean, for me, that's a really important question because peatlands are carbon sinks. They're like such a big part of our terrestrial carbon sink. and if they can experience fire and continue to accumulate carbon over their fire return interval, then we're all good. But if they are burning more severely and they're losing more carbon per fire or they're burning more frequently and they're not having time to reaccumulate that carbon, then this is, this is a real challenge because that's something that we have really relied on to absorb carbon from the atmosphere and lock it away. So if we're opening up these old, previously stored um, 
legacy carbon stocks, then that's sort of another accelerator for um, for the climate crisis. And so from looking at the drivers of fire severity, of course, a huge one is is moisture content or water table level. And we know that with climate change, the moisture content's likely going to go down. There's going to be more atmospheric demand um, of water and peatlands can't regulate their evapotranspiration. Um, Manuel Helbig, who is um, now at Dalhousie, did a sort of huge synthesis paper on looking at how forests and peatlands regulate their evapotranspiration. Um, so sort of how they hold on to their moisture. And it turns out that peatlands just don't do not do that as well because the mosses don't have that physiological structure um, to hold on as well. So I do think that they are quite vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, which will result in more severe drying and then, you know, just be one more sort of propagator into um, increased carbon emissions. When you were talking about, well, I guess that natural peatlands will burn for a few centimeters on average. Does that help with the carbon sink or? (laughs) I'm sorry, words are really hard for me today and that's great as a podcaster, (laughs) but I am just trying to envision, um, obviously when things burn, it does leave some some charred material and often that is less yummy to microbes it doesn't uh i guess interact as usual peat would and so then that carbon is locked away or could be locked away longer are you seeing that sort of a feedback with less severe fires yeah like great great question and it is it's all a bit counterintuitive so um no problem on on that. So there's a couple of reasons actually why fire is good, why natural low severity fire is is good for the peatland carbon stock. And so one of them is that pyrogenic carbon, as you say. So it's this charred material that doesn't decompose as fast and it often gets sort of incorporated into the peat matrix as the mosses start to grow again Um, and we see it we've dug down in peatlands and you see sort of charred peat or charcoal from from burnt trees and yeah it's locked away there so that's definitely a factor but it's what we see is quite a small factor it's quite a small percentage of the carbon burned um, that ends up locked away in that charred material but one thing that we do see is that peatlands typically burn in their later successional stages um so whatever that means for that region and of course this is because they've developed with fire so they have this this routine so in the boreal plains and especially in tree bogs like me and you have worked in um the black spruce grow taller, start shading the surface, and your sphagnum mosses get overtaken and outcompeted by feather mosses. And so in the boreal, at least, these are the two dominant mosses, which sort of fight it out 
um, in the peatland and the sphagnum mosses are really fire resistant um, and really more productive than the feather mosses. But in later succession, you get these feather mosses that come in and it really limits the amount of carbon that the peatland can take up each year. But when a fire comes through, those feather mosses aren't very fire resistant and they all burn off and you burn the trees and you open up the canopy and in 20 or 30 years time your sphagnum mosses are dominant again and so your actual sort of productivity levels and your carbon accumulation goes up and so all you need is that carbon accumulation to outweigh the carbon that you lost in the fire and you do that over and over and over again for a few thousand years and that's how you get the deep peatlands that we have today but it's just it's just a fine balance and so that's why it's that's why it's sort of concerning but it's also why peatlands are so incredible you know having figured out that that balance and being able to accumulate the carbon that they have so for say like a western canadian peatland that is adapted to fire um in like the past like thousand years or so or however long that peatland has been there and it's late succession and it is in a fire regime (laughs) a lot of caveats and stuff there but once they are in a fire cycle are those pretty routine like every like few decades or does it just depend the average fire return interval if we're talking um western canada boreal plains um is around 120 years from and that's been sort of verified by a few different ways um sort of both paleo studies sort of digging down into the peat and finding those layers of um of charcoal like we talked about but also um some studies look at fire scars on trees and other look at sort of the age of trees because typically because the trees are so densely packed, but they're also a bit stunted in peatlands, when a fire comes through, it burns them all, top to bottom. And so you get a new cohort of trees So after the fire. So the age of tree can tell you a lot about when the last fire was. And so we work on this number of around 120 years, which is one of the shorter fire return intervals across Canada at least, um, and one of the shorter sort of natural fire-free intervals. So yeah, that's what, that's what we sort of work off, but we, there has been research on the fuel loads of the above ground fuels anyway, to say that those above ground fuels in peatlands, they could carry, um, a fire, a crown fire probably after about 60 to 80 years. So it could happen sooner or they could just avoid fire because fire is so um, erratic and hard to predict. So it it could be anywhere between 80 and 200 and something. So we sort of meet in the middle and say an average is 120 years. Okay. And a crown fire is just when the trees burn, but not down into the peat? So a crown fire is actually what we use to describe a fire which burns all the way from the surface above ground sort of on the surface fuels up into the crowns of the trees so the canopy of the trees 
So it's sort of more of a, you can picture a crown fire as a bit of a wall of fire um, moving through. So you can't get a crown fire in a shrub dominated peatland because there's no canopies. So that would just be a surface fire. And then fires that go into the peat are either called smoldering fires um, or they're called ground fires, depending on who you're talking to. In your research, you also look at greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah. And do you, is that, I guess I'm used to like chamber methods of measuring greenhouse gas emissions or like any covariance measurements. Um, is that what you're using to measure greenhouse gas emissions or are you looking at volume of peat lost or other methods? How do you go about doing that? For those unfamiliar with greenhouse gas monitoring um, for a lot of ecosystems, especially peatlands, so I referred to the chamber method and then the eddy covariance method. So the chamber method is using a chamber. Um, sometimes they are buckets. Sometimes they're these square or round plastic containers that you put upside down and you measure the change in greenhouse gas concentration within that enclosed space. So that's the chamber method. The eddy covariance method um, involves a tower that is built in an area where you want to measure greenhouse gas emissions and it has some special sensors on it that measures greenhouse gases in the air and it measures it through time. So you're able to get the change in greenhouse gas concentrations and that gives you a flux or the amount of greenhouse, greenhouse gases that are leaving or going into the peatland. We actually try and integrate all of them. We found a real sparsity of data in chamber methods um, and eddy covariance methods post-fire in peatlands or there's sort of a few a few measurements in the first one to three years post-fire because it's like oh that's super interesting it looks like the surface of the moon so let's go and measure that when you have this sort of black peatland with these little orange uh, hummocks of sphagnum that have survived the fire so people go in and measure the uh, carbon fluxes then, but then there's not a lot of measurements sort of five to 20, 30 years post-fire. So there's quite a gap. So we're trying to fill that in. But to know what the long-term carbon balance is or to know whether these fires are tipping the carbon balance um, and causing peatlands to become a carbon source um, versus their typical uh, historical function as a carbon sink, you also have to include the peat that burned in um, in the fire in a, in a volumetric way. So I can tell you about my really sophisticated method, not, not my method, the method that is, is used among the, the researchers of how to um, measure peat burn severity. Let's do it. It's definitely less glitchy than chambers and it's less scary than eddy covariance. <laughs> um, so it's called depth of burn. And what we do is, especially in peatlands that have um, black spruce trees, black spruce trees have these, um, these roots that come out almost horizontally right under the surface um, in peatlands. And that's because they don't want to get their roots too wet, so they keep them 
sort of up at the surface. They don't want to dive down into that water table right away. Um, but what happens is after a fire comes along, it exposes those roots. And we know that those black spruce roots are typically about four centimeters under the under the surface um, of the peatland. And so if you tie a string between one root and another root, you can um, get an estimate of the pre-fire peat surface. So you lay out your, your string, you pull it tight between your two roots, and then you measure down to the, to the new peat surface. So to the post-fire peat surface. Um, and then basically you minus one from the other and you find out how much uh, depth of peat that you've lost. And then with some relatively simple bulk density measurements in unburned peatlands, um, and yeah, knowing how much the carbon content of your peat is, you can sort of whiz that up into a carbon loss estimate for a particular area or a particular peatland. And then you can sort of compare that, figure out how many years it would take at a typical sort of carbon accumulation rate to, uh, to get that carbon back and to turn the peatland into a carbon sink. That's really fun. <laughs> so do you go to a bunch of different areas in the burned area, try to get an average depth? Yeah, it's typically a few hundred, if not thousand measurements. That sounds very intense. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right as long as the mosquitoes aren't out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you get, if you take a measurement that is abnormally deep, say on those like fringe areas, mm -hmm. um, do you try to model that somehow so that you're not carrying that super depth, deep area into your average, but also not excluding them? Yes, that is something that we've been working on. And a PhD student um, in Dr. Waddington's lab um, figured that out, did like area weighted averages um, on specific peatlands in the boreal plains, sort of did more of a uh, an intense look at a, at a few small peatlands um, versus sort of broader characterization of peatland wildfire. And he actually found that including those margins, those deep burning hotspots in um, an area weighted average, that the margins actually contributed 90% of the total peatland carbon loss. Wow. Yeah. So it really just really bumped up the carbon loss estimate from one particular um, peatland in general, which was which was quite small. Yeah, that's a that's a major finding. <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think it's it's interesting to note as well that actually, I don't know if you've covered it in other um, sessions, but peatland fluxes in general are either not included in earth system models in you know in the big climate change models or they're, they're not included very well 
Anyway, so there's all of these intricacies to um, peatland function and to peatland carbon accumulation that that we need to get in into the models because right now they're just they're just not represented at all or not well. And are they not represented because the research is still developing, or just because they've been overlooked? I think it is a combination of both. It's it takes a lot of a lot of convincing someone that three percent of the land area is, you know, is that important? Um, because northern peatlands cover three percent of the the area, but they actually account for thirty percent of the soil carbon sink. And so there's sort of that challenge in that it's it's not it's not obvious and you can't see it because all of this carbon is underground, right? So until you go in and start taking an auger to a peatland and showing somebody how deep it is and how dense and how rich in carbon it is, it is like a very hard science communication piece, which is why I think this podcast is is so great because, um, yeah, I think people need to, or we need to try and help people understand in all, all different ways how important and amazing um, peatlands are and all of the crazy stuff that that goes on in them. Yeah, definitely. I I guess I'm still caught up on these earth system models and I obviously read a lot of papers where people mention the like yeah, earth system models don't include this or that. And it just seems kind of funny to me. I think I guess from an ecological the more you learn about ecology, it's very obvious that it is like kind of these small areas that contribute a lot of the problems, kind of like that 80-20 rule where like 80% isn't going to give you too much of a problem, and then it is that 20% that's going to, yeah, that really matters. And it, it just seems funny to me that their system models aren't there, but also I guess we have only been developing them for so long. I don't know how long we've been developing them. That's something I should figure out. Okay, I did some Googling and I found this interesting article on the history of our system models and climate modeling generally. And it went back through like the Greeks where they were trying to think about how the world worked. And so there are little conceptual models and how that is morphed into mathematical models. And with the advent of supercomputers and greater computing power, um, we were able to model things like weather patterns. And as climate change became more and more of interest, people began modeling climate. And so the Earth system models that we have now have been, I don't know, people have been working on weather models since, I don't know, after World War II or so, seemed to be what that article was saying. And then those weather models have been transformed into Earth system science models, and those have been We've been really refining those since about the 80s. So not a super long time. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a good point, isn't it? And so, yeah, I'm sure we'll get there, but we just need to keep pushing and we need to get these peatlands mapped and we need to figure out really how much carbon they do lose 
in a fire and how that might change with climate change and whether that's going to be globally, you know, are all of the peatlands going to burn more severely? Or is it just certain peatlands in certain places or certain depths of peatlands? Or um, peatlands on slopes or this or that, which are going to be most affected? And then we can start feeding them this information and say, put this in your model. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this shouldn't be a hard sell. Come on, put it in there. Yeah. I have like no modeling background whatsoever, though. So in my mind, I'm like, yeah, just like write a few extra lines of code. It's not that hard, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I've I've had I've had a go and it's um, it's, it's a whole other world. It's what? Sorry. Whole other world. Modeling world. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. We'll just keep going about tromping around peatlands, tying strings on roots, and right. Yeah. Things. <laughs> it's a it's a great method, and you need very little equipment, which is always good in the field because it's probably going to break or you're going to lose it. So. Yeah, and like string is cheap. It's not like. Yeah tens maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars (laughs) yeah just i just need a piece of string and a ruler Alrighty. well we should probably wrap things up and i do feel like we could talk about this for (laughs) for the listeners they've they've probably they've probably had enough peatland wild for wildfire for one day well i don't know about that but hopefully they get the idea um i guess if there's I, I know you just moved to a new postdoc position. I did. And you are one of the people that lots of people recommend when I am interested in peat fire. They're like, oh, you must talk to Sophie. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad that I have. But if there's any, uh, I guess, exciting research questions within the peat fire world, if there's a few that you think would be interesting for a general audience. Um, maybe something that we didn't touch on here, something that you're really interested in, or maybe a new project that you're really excited about. Um, Feel free to plug it here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, my new postdoc position is at the University of Toronto um, with the Fire Lab there. And I'm working with Dr. Mike Watton, who is not a peatland scientist. He is very much a wildfire management scientist. researcher and scientist and practitioner as well um he works for uh the canadian forest service and i'm actually working with him to develop a new moisture code um that's going to be part of this huge um update on what's called the canadian forest fire danger rating system and so what that system is is the system that so all these different models and it spits out the numbers which create um, the fire weather index, which when you go hiking or camping and you see that sort of speedometer type scale with the wildfire hazard for today is low, moderate, high, extreme. Um, that's what the Canadian Forest Fire Danger Rating System 
does. It it gives us those numbers. And so I'm now working with Mike to include peatlands in that system. So fire managers around the country are going to be able to, to know whether their peatlands are ripe to burn and they're going to have real big problems and deep smoldering and heavy smoke or whether it's going to be okay. It'll probably move across the peatland relatively slowly, but you know, you won't get these really deep and challenging um, wildfires. And so I'm super excited about that. And it also means that I have to switch gears a bit and, you know, talking to a lot of managers and practitioners, I've been talking to the Parkland County um, fire crews about it and what would have helped them know how to sort of deal with this wildfire before it came through. Parkland County is in Alberta near my research sites. And I think Sophie brought it up here because I believe we talked off mic about my research sites and the fact that they burn. So that's why she brings up Parkland County specifically. And so, yeah, that's been great so far. And it's really interesting. And I'm really happy to be having this sort of application of scientific research because, I mean, we talked a lot today about how peatland wildfire could have these sort of global climate impacts. and But we also, you know, touched on air pollution and haze. And that's not just the case in tropical peatlands. There's um, communities sort of all over Canada and all over the world that are affected by the, uh, the smoke pollution caused by these peatland wildfires. So helping fire management agencies better manage either their districts or the fires when they occur, I think is really important. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited to be, to be working on that. That's really exciting. I guess uh, a quick follow-up question that I have about that is, is the weather forecast or the fire forecast for peatlands very different from upland forests or is it usually pretty similar? That's, that's still what we're trying to, to figure out. Of course, those treed bogs are pretty similar, but some of the other peatlands are very different. And, you know, you really get the multi-year impacts of, of water deficits on, on peatlands because of that, um, the water table that, that controls the moisture in the peat. So, yeah, something, something we're, we're still figuring out. Very cool. And one of my wrap-up questions that I like to ask people is, so if you have a friend that comes to you and wants to know how they can either conserve peatlands or avoid fire in peatlands, what sort of things could they do as a non-scientist, someone that doesn't dedicate their lives to peatlands, what could they do either to like donate money to something or like raise awareness? Yes, great question. I'm trying to think which direction to go with it. Um, I would say, actually, just because it's very fire specific, I would say educate yourselves and educate your friends on one, what a, what a peatland is, but two, sort of how they ignite. So actually lots of really bad peatland wildfires are ignited by 
ATVs um, picking up long grass or igniting long grass or heavy machinery or people sort of using disposable barbecues and stuff like that in peatlands. And they think it's okay because it's not a forest. Um, but it's, it's not. And this, you know, these accidental ignitions can, can start really severe fires that take months or years and hundreds, like thousands of dollars, um, to put out. So I'd say that, that would be my, my fire related peatland conservation, um, tip. It would be basically be, be very careful about anywhere that you could cause an ignition. That is great practical advice, (laughs) (laughs) which maybe I should have asked, like, how do peatland fires start? But yeah, a lot of ATV stuff. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Um, and then the final question is what is your favorite peatland? Oh, you can't do that to me. Um, tricky. I will say my favorite peatland is a peatland called Pelican Mountain. Um, it's not, it's not a mountain at all. Um, it is a peatland in fact. And, um, yeah, it's a beautiful big bog, um, surrounded by some, um, sort of fen complex as you walk into it. And it's where I've done a lot of my research and it's where we did an experimental fire, which was probably the coolest day, um, of my career so far. And I'm shocked that I didn't manage to talk about it in this interview. Um, but it was very, very cool. So I've got loads of good photos and videos, um, and all sorts from this day when we set the peatland on fire so we could actually see what happened rather than just going in after the fact and, you know, trying to piece it back together. So yeah, I think that would be it. And this is a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview in the dead of night. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's okay. I'm going to try and um, wind down now. Yeah. I'm glad we found time. Yes. To, to squeeze it in the I think I don't even know what we're on seven or eight hours time difference I think something so, like that yeah glad we made it work all right what an interview huge thanks to Sophie for joining the pod and I wish her all the best in her new position at the University of Toronto if you want to support the pod please consider subscribing and rating the podcast wherever you listen And you can join the conversation and see photos from podcast guests on Twitter and Instagram at the handle for for Pete's sake pod. And you can also send an email at for Pete's sake pod at gmail.com. Finally, thank you to Blue Dot Sessions for their music, courtesy of the Free Music Archive, and to Dr. Yulia Burden for her podcast.